Welcome, listeners, to the next episode of Southern Grimoire. I'm your host, K.D. Burr. Before we proceed, a warning. This chapter of the Grimoire is about unsolved murders. It contains descriptions of violence and criminal activity, and may be unsuitable for younger listeners. Let's begin. In April of 1980, a group of fishermen in Jones, Oklahoma went out to the river, hoping to find that the fish were biting. The men found more than they bargained for. On the banks of the river was the mummified body of a young woman, full of bullet holes. The position of her body suggested that she had been dragged there by her killer, left at the mercy of the elements. Upon closer examination, the partially preserved woman had at least three bullet wounds in her chest. During the autopsy, it was discovered that one of the bullets was still lodged in her body, along with, strangely enough, a dime. The medical examiner theorized that the coin, most likely in her pocket at the time of her death, was forced through the chest cavity by the force of the bullet. But even stranger was how her body came to be in its mummified state. After testing, it was concluded that her body had been covered with calcium carbonate, otherwise known as lime. Calcium carbonate is most commonly used to speed the decomposition of unwanted shrubbery and tree stumps. But, unluckily for the killer, in this case the chemical did the exact opposite. The weather patterns at her time of death, coupled with the cool air and moisture from the river, caused the lime to preserve rather than degrade. Forensic investigators believe that the woman's body was most likely dumped weeks before the fishermen discovered it. Known only as the Lime Lady, after 35 years, detectives are still searching for the woman's identity and for her killer. They have followed hundreds of leads over the years, only to come up empty-handed. With advances in technology and forensic science, authorities were hopeful that her identity would be discovered. But even comparing her DNA to the National Missing Persons Database was unsuccessful. Still, someone, somewhere, must be looking for the Lime Lady. She was Caucasian, most likely in her early 20s, 5 feet 7 inches tall, and had a distinctive heart-shaped tattoo on her chest. If you or anyone you know has information about the Lime Lady, please contact the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office. The victim of our next unsolved crime is no mystery, but her identity is about the only thing anyone knows for certain. In the spring of 1986, a plume of billowing smoke led authorities to a deserted bridge near Lawton, Oklahoma. There, melted into the guardrail, was the twisted wreckage of a burning car. Inside the car was the body of Eileen Conway, but how she came to be there was the real mystery. The Oklahoma Highway Patrol found marks on the road that indicated the car was traveling about 60 miles per hour at the point of impact. At first glance, the wreck seemed much like any other unfortunate accident. It was anything but. 
After positively identifying the body, the authorities were tasked with notifying Eileen's husband, Pat Conway, of her tragic accident. But Pat had reason to suspect something more sinister had occurred. He had arrived home shortly after his wife's car had struck the bridge, and he noticed immediately that things weren't right. A garden hose was left running outside, filling up the backyard swimming pool. Inside, Eileen's purse, along with her glasses and driver's license, had been left behind. An iron was on, with Eileen's clothes draped across the ironing table, and in the bathroom, the tub was full of water. Perhaps most telling was the phone, left dangling off the hook. Ray Anderson, an investigator from the district attorney's office, believed at once that Eileen had met with foul play. He maintains that Eileen did not get into her car of her own accord. Someone else may have been with her, Anderson is reported as saying. They may have opened the door, set the accelerator, and slammed it into drive, hoping to run Mrs. Conway off into the creek and to make it appear it was an accident. It was also theorized that the car, which had burned at such an intense rate, had been doused in an accelerant. The tip-off had been the Conway's gas cap. It was gone. In most arson cases involving vehicles, the gas cap is missing. The Oklahoma State Fire Marshal's office conducted a series of tests, including a burn test on samples from a car nearly identical to the Conway's. The test suggested that gasoline had most likely been used. The car's upholstery and dashboard were made of a flame retardant material, and when a blowtorch was applied, they burned at a slow rate and went out easily. Far from the type of blaze that destroyed Eileen Conway's vehicle. But once gasoline was applied and the same test repeated, the samples disintegrated at an alarming rate. After all of these findings, Eileen's cause of death was changed from accidental to unknown. But we're still no closer to knowing. What happened to Eileen Conway? One popular theory is that Eileen's death was somehow connected to a series of robberies in the surrounding area. Online crime enthusiasts suggest that perhaps the intruders broke in, expecting to find the home empty, and came across Eileen. But I wonder, why would a seasoned burglar deduce that a home was empty with a car in the drive and a running water hose filling a pool? If she did surprise the burglars, why go to such elaborate lengths to burn and crash her car? Why not kill her outright? Was the body inside the wrecked vehicle, burned past the point of recognition, even Eileen Conway? Who was Eileen calling in her final moments? And why have they never come forward? The case is a complex mystery, and one authorities may never solve. It's strange enough when one person mysteriously turns up dead, but even more so when it's an entire family. In 2009, Bobby and Sherilyn Jameson disappeared, along with their six-year-old daughter, Madison. The family was from Eufaula, Oklahoma but had been hoping to move. They had recently been looking to purchase several acres of land and were interested in a plot near Red Oak, Oklahoma. 
The Jamesons were taking a trip to look at plots when they vanished. From the outside, the Jamesons appeared to be a normal family. But after an initial investigation of the family's Eufaula home, authorities began to uncover a series of strange and even eerie circumstances. A spellbook was found in the family's home, and bizarre messages were spray-painted onto a large shipping container sitting out in the yard. One message said, Three cats killed to date by people in this area. Witches don't like it when you kill their black cats. Family and friends came forward to admit that Bobby and Sherilyn Jameson had told them some shocking things. The couple believed they were being haunted and had recounted their paranormal experiences to several people. The couple's pastor, Reverend Gary Brandon, agreed to give a statement to police. He went on the record to say that the couple had seen spirits in their home, supposedly the ghosts of a family who had lived there previously. According to Sherilyn, her daughter Madison frequently saw and spoke to the youngest apparition. As the paranormal activity escalated, Bobby told the pastor that he and his family were embattled in spiritual warfare. He asked the pastor if there were special bullets that could kill ghosts, and admitted that he had consulted a satanic book in an effort to learn how to rid himself of the spirits. One of Sherilyn's close friends told the Daily Mail that not only did she believe the Jameson's house was haunted, she had experienced it herself. I don't want to sound crazy, she said, but whenever I went there, I felt a horrible presence. I would leave feeling so down and depressed. It's hard to describe. Police didn't know what to make of these revelations. They had been operating under the assumption that the Jameson's disappearance was connected to illegal drug activity. But they found nothing in the home or on the property to corroborate such a theory. A surveillance video showed Bobby and Sherilyn loading up their truck the day they vanished and both of them looked tired and extremely thin. Police thought this was due to drug use, but now they were unsure. Had the Jamesons been under some kind of duress, supernatural or otherwise? Eight days after the Jameson family vanished, their locked truck was found abandoned in a wooded area in Latimer County, Oklahoma. Inside, police discovered Bobby and Sherilyn's cell phones car keys, and $32,000 in cash. They also found a harshly worded 11-page rant written by Sherilyn to Bobby. Little Madison's beloved dog Maisie was also found in the car, dehydrated and barely clinging to life. The local police department organized a massive search party, with officers and volunteers coming out in full force to scour the mountainous terrain. The Latimer County Sheriff's Department even provided drones and tracking dogs, but not a single clue was found. There would be no answers for four years. In 2013, a deer hunter stumbled across the badly damaged skeletons of the Jameson family, lying face down and side by side. Their bodies were found less than three miles from where their abandoned truck had been discovered. Due to the degradation of the skeletons, 
Experts were unable to deduce the Jameson's cause of death, but they theorized that the family had most likely died shortly after they abandoned their truck. I wonder if the Latimer County Sheriff's Department launched their largest search effort in recent history to find the Jamesons. How did they miss three bodies lined up right next to each other, only 2.7 miles from where they disappeared? Were they murdered? Or were they simply lost in the woods, weak and delirious, eventually succumbing to the elements after nearly making it back to their vehicle? The area their bodies were found is fairly difficult to hike to, the terrain is rocky and unforgiving. Why were they out there? Why did they make their young daughter walk in such conditions? Did someone, or something, force them out into the wilderness to meet their demise? There have been several theories and persons of interest regarding the Jameson case, but nothing has ever been proven. Though a drug deal gone awry has been one of the most prevalent theories, it seems unlikely. If it was in fact a drug deal, why did they go to such a remote location? Why would they bring their young daughter and her dog? Why was such a large amount of cash left in the vehicle, untouched? Were there really supernatural forces at work in the lives of the Jamesons? There is one unusual coincidence that may suggest something paranormal occurred. It's a phenomenon known as the 35th degree of latitude. For whatever reason, this geographical line has been associated with multiple UFO sightings, ghostly encounters, and tragic murders. In the state of Oklahoma, several cases have ties to the phenomenon. The Oklahoma City bombing, the unsolved disappearance of Tommy Eastup, and the disappearance of the Jameson family all occurred along the 35th degree of latitude. Another strange and sinister murder that took place along this geographical line is one that I researched in depth and followed closely while writing for an online publication called Odyssey. Pastor Carol Faye Daniels used to be a champion for the hopeless and helpless of Anadarko, Oklahoma, a small, economically depressed town with a high rate of drug use and a large transient population. Pastor Daniels would drive 60 miles from her home in Oklahoma City every Sunday to serve the small community. Though Christ's Holy Sanctified Church no longer had a congregation, the doors were open each Sunday morning, and Pastor Daniels was there with open arms, ready to witness to anyone who dropped by to visit. Sometimes, she would go out into the streets, offering food and goodwill to those who needed it most. Ask anyone in town. Pastor Daniels was loved and respected. But at least one person had an issue with Carol Daniels, for reasons no one has been able to uncover. In 2009, the same year the Jamesons went missing, Pastor Daniels was brutally attacked and killed in her own church which lays along the 35th degree of latitude. On the morning of her death, Pastor Daniels arrived bright and early as she did each week. At some point after entering the church, she was viciously stabbed through the neck, to the point of near decapitation. Her killer also stabbed her chest, back, stomach, and face. 
Pastor Daniel's hands bore defensive lacerations, showing that she had fought for her life. Her body was stripped nude, doused in a cleaning solvent, and ritualistically posed like a crucifix. Her hair had been set on fire. The killer escaped out the back door of the church, taking Pastor Daniel's clothes and likely valuable forensic evidence with him. Around noon, an elderly couple showed up to visit Pastor Daniel's. They found the front door to be locked, which was unusual, and became worried when the pastor didn't answer their knocks. They immediately called the police. It's important to note that the Anadarko Police Department is less than a block away and was only separated from the church by a wide, empty lot. Whoever had killed Pastor Daniels had fled the scene in full view of the APD and the Cato County Jail. Responding Officer Ashley Burris arrived at the church in two minutes. He entered through a side door and discovered the brutalized body of Pastor Daniels. He immediately called for backup. Due to the heinous nature of the crime, it wasn't long before the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation stepped in. Unfortunately, the Daniels case would prove to be the next in a long line of poorly handled murder cases left in the agency's wake. Top criminologists squabbled over motive and investigators had difficulty zeroing in on any promising leads. One expert was convinced that the crime was sexually motivated, despite there being no evidence of rape or sexual assault. Criminal profiler Brent Turvey was under the impression that the crime was deeply personal and committed out of rage. According to investigators working the case, there are only three reasons Pastor Daniel's body would have been posed in such a way. One, it was a crime of sexual fantasy or frustration. Two, it was done out of anger and retaliation. Or three, it was done with the intention of confusing investigators. I am of the opinion that they left out one huge and very distinct possibility. Pastor Daniels was killed as a religious statement and her body was posed to serve as some kind of biblical tableau I am particularly intrigued by the burning of her hair. Though some think it was done strictly to eliminate evidence, I think there could be more to it. In the Bible, chapter 5 in the book of Ezekiel talks about God's razor of judgment. The passage reads, Now son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city, and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few hairs and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take of these few and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to all of Israel. These instructions were given because of the wickedness of the people of Israel. They had disobeyed the laws and decrees of the Sovereign Lord, and a swift and brutal punishment was to befall them. With the vicious slaying of Pastor Daniels taking place in her own church, and the deliberate posing of her body, 
I certainly think it's possible that the burning of her hair could have been done for symbolic religious reasons. However, this theory was never thoroughly investigated by the OSBI. In fact, many found failings with every aspect of the Daniels investigation, especially when it came to light that the man who had performed Pastor Daniels' autopsy had botched multiple cases and lost several important tissue samples connected to separate crimes. Dr. Kali Trant was eventually found to have made mistakes on Daniel's autopsy, and in 2010, he was fired and unceremoniously sued. Several suspects in the Daniel's murder were quickly ruled out in the beginning stages of the investigation, but progress stalled after that. It wasn't until May of this year that any updates were announced. Recent developments left some people satisfied with the performance of the OSBI and local law enforcement, but others have more questions than before. A grand jury looked into the possibility that a local drug dealer, now deceased, was somehow involved in Daniel's bizarre and brutal death. The suspect, Denise Cooper of Anadarko, died of cancer this past February. Cooper had a well-documented criminal history, with convictions stemming from methamphetamine distribution and assault. But the extent of her alleged involvement is still unclear, with at least two witnesses called before the grand jury, refusing to answer questions related to Daniel's murder. One online crime enthusiast, who has religiously followed the case, quipped, Blaming the murder on a dead woman would wrap this up quite nicely for them. Rumors about Daniel's murder have persisted for years, and it's true that Cooper's name has been heard among the whispers, but hers was just one of many. In some ways, the theory of Cooper or someone like her being responsible for the crime is a good fit. Pastor Daniels was active in ministering to the transient community and extended her help to Anadarko's less fortunate. It's not outside the realm of possibility that Daniels could have come into contact with Cooper, and perhaps even helped her at one time. She might have been familiar with Pastor Daniels' routine, and she certainly felt comfortable enough to conduct other criminal activities in the area. Residents and interested outsiders alike feel that Cooper, if she was in fact the culprit, couldn't have acted alone. Others feel that due to the bizarre and heinous nature of the crime, Cooper is an unlikely suspect. How did a drug-addled meth dealer manage to pull off the perfect crime, leaving virtually no forensic evidence to speak of? How did she have the forethought to take Daniel's clothes from the scene, or destroy evidence with a cleaning solvent? How was she able to escape the church unseen, drenched in Daniel's blood? More importantly, how did a small-time local drug dealer avoid justice for the crime when the OSBI was supposedly investigating so thoroughly? The OSBI, unfortunately, doesn't have a successful solve rate when it comes to these types of cases. And more than that, they have made a habit of thoroughly bungling important investigations. One need look no further than the heartbreaking Asia Johnson case for reference. I find it a little convenient that the sudden break in Daniel's case is attached to a suspect who can no longer defend herself or raise arguments against any alleged evidence they may have uncovered. But 
For the sake of Daniel's loved ones, I hope that the truth will soon be brought to light. With so many uncertainties and unanswered questions, all we can do is trust in the fact that Carol Faye Daniels will have justice, whether it's in this life or the next. That's all for this week's episode. For more information on these cases and many more, follow me on Instagram at Southern Grimoire or on my Facebook page. Until next time, listeners, remember, there is no darkness that cannot be overcome by light.